Now, some people think everybody belongs to the mystical body of Christ. The way certain people talk, we're all Catholics, regardless of race, color, or creed. No matter what you believe, you're, I'm sorry. And here again, we ought to use this analogy with the Blessed Virgin. The Blessed Virgin gave birth to one Jesus Christ, not twins, or not two half Jesus Christ. There was only one God-man born of the Virgin. And so, too, there's only one mystical body. That Mary is the mother of the church in this sense of being the mother of Jesus Christ, who's the head of the church. And from this, so from this beginning came this people of God knit together. And St. Paul says, is Christ divided? And I repeat, did the Blessed Virgin have two sons? There's only one church, one mystical body. And the only question is which? But at least not, let's not have this, this, this strange doctrine as if everybody belongs to the mystical body and whether you contradict one another, whether you have strange ideas about morality or worship or whatever, we're all part of the body. Now, this contradicts Scripture. There's one mystical body. Christ is not divided, even as the Blessed Virgin gave birth to one child, not twins or not two half babies. This, I want one other point about Mary and the separated brethren. It is quite understandable that serious Christians, Lutherans or Baptists or otherwise, Stress Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Redeemer. It's absolutely central that it is not the case that the Protestants stress Jesus Christ and we stress the Blessed Virgin. If that were so, they'd be right. We're Christians. So I perfectly understand their anxiety to give absolute primacy to Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Redeemer, who takes away the sins of the world. That's what St. John said. Again, that's from the Bible. There's the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, with great courage, and against the better instincts of certain modernist theologians, the Roman Catholic Church has solemnly defined, as I noted before, the doctrine of Mary's immaculate conception an embarrassment to a lot of people, but note how it reinforces the doctrine of Christ as Redeemer. This is what I mean. We hold that it was the privilege of Mary, the unique privilege of Mary, to have been conceived without the shade, the stain of an original sin. Now what does that mean? If she uniquely is without original sin, it means everybody else is with original sin. And it's only because everyone else is with original sin that we need a redeemer. So even here, in what seems to be a very controversial and to some people unnecessary obstacle to Christian unity, on the contrary, it points still more to the redemptive need of Jesus Christ. Here is our immaculate virgin, our mother. She's pure. 
She has no stain of sin in her. She is not under the curse of Adam, which had been laid upon the human race because of the disobedience of Adam. She was the obedient new Eve. And from her came the new Adam, a strange reversal. Because from the old Adam came Eve. But from the new Eve came the new Adam. And this is scriptural. This is right from St. Paul. Therefore, Mary, by the very fact that we stress her immaculate conception, we by that fact stress the state of the rest of the human race chained in sin, not able to please God, not able to know God, not able to pray, to give God the worthy sacrifice which alone can appease divine justice. And to this extent also, I insist, our devotion to the Blessed Virgin under her title of the Immaculate Conception, so far from being a barrier for Lutherans and Baptists and Methodists, should be an incitement to unity. Because we stress still more than they, original sin, her holy exemption, and the more she is pure and the more she is unique, the more we know how the rest of the world is impure, needing redemption. And the more we see this marvelous plan of God whereby the woman will crush the head of the serpent. This again is scriptural. We do not invent these themes. They are from the Bible. I said before that the Blessed Virgin appears so rarely in the Bible, and this is true if we had a concordance with us and scripture scholars, they probably would find that the exact references to Mary in the New Testament are quite few. Maybe 30 lines would exhaust the references to Mary. And people say, well, gee, for the sake of 30 short lines in the Bible, you people have built 10,000 cathedrals. There are 50,000 paintings of the Blessed Virgin. They might consider that an exaggeration. In the first place, I say those 30 lines are quite important, to say the least. After all, she is the mother of God. And that says everything. There. God is infinite. She is this finite creature who put into the world the infinite God. And there's no amount of paintings which will exhaust that. But secondly, those who study the scriptures on their knees with the spirit of faith and devotion will uncover new treasures from the old. They will understand how the Old Testament in shadow prefigured the New Testament. They will read carefully the book of Genesis where it is promised that the woman will crush the serpent. And Mary is that woman. There's a marvelous scripture scholar in America, Father Gilsdorf, to my mind, the most gifted, pious scripture man in the church. And he has marvelous talks on the Blessed Virgin in scripture. And you'll be surprised how with careful, prayerful meditation, the role of the Blessed Virgin becomes mysteriously clear as we see these Old Testament allusions to her verified in the New Testament and supported by the testimony of great saints and doctors and by scripture itself. 
So this again, how, how the Blessed Virgin therefore draws us into this contemplative mood, which alone can instruct us about the things of God. When you want to know about the things of God, we cannot have noise. We cannot have busybodies. We cannot have all of this agitation. We have to be like Mary herself, pondering things in our hearts. And when we ponder the scriptures, we see more and more the enormous role, the, the immeasurable role, which the Blessed Virgin plays in our redemption through Christ, never alone. She would be the first to denounce idolatry as if she was the redeemer of the world. It's her son who's the redeemer of the world. So therefore, to sum this up, the Blessed Virgin is so far from being an obstacle to unity, I claim she's an essential ingredient to unity. The more our separated brethren see the role of the Blessed Virgin, the more closer they are to the truth about Christ, because she bore Christ as his mother. She predicted that all generations will call her blessed, and we call her blessed, and so on. And I'm quite encouraged, as I noted at Walsingham, that the, the Anglicans there, at least, seem not at all embarrassed by the Blessed Virgin. They honor the Holy House of Loreto, which is a replica, supposedly, of the house that the Holy Family lived in in the Holy Land. Well, that's a marvelous beginning for Christian unity. We honor this dwelling, this humble dwelling, where a virgin mother and a virgin spouse had a baby, a divine child. Well, let this be the topic of our unity and we say this, therefore, with love and joy, not with embarrassment. We're not embarrassed over the Blessed Virgin. My third and last point will be the topic of this talk, Our Lady in the Parish. Because everything I've said so far refers to our faith at large, and some people might accuse it of being abstract. But it's in the parish where at least once a week you go to Mass sometimes make visits to Mass. It's in the parish where you meet your fellow parishioners where there's a genuine spirit of community. Just at today's this evening's Mass, there was a casket. Someone will be buried, I suppose, tomorrow morning. Most of us are buried in a parish. It's a great it's part of, of having a happy death that this church building which you frequented more or less regularly, it holds your mortal remains for the last time before you're buried in the earth. And a baby with this expectation of new life is brought to the parish for baptism. And often parish schools instruct the children. The joyful things like marriage occur in the parish. It's also in the parish where you meet a cross-section of the human race. We have a lot of dreamers, a lot of utopians. A typical mark of, of socialists is always to have this utopian view about humankind and all, that if only humankind has free medical care and a job, everything will be all right. Things like that. 
But if you reflect on the real world in your parish, you don't have to you don't have to go to university and read thousands of books. Within a parish of two thousand people, you get a cross section of the human race. It's like reading Shakespeare. There's the happily married couple with a few children. There's the lonely person, the dying person, the cruel person, the impure person, the drunk the one who can keep no job, the nervous one, that this whole cross-section of the world is right at our fingertips. We don't have to do anything extraordinary. Some people think the only way to save anything is to raise an army. Oh, it's within our parish. So many things can be done right together. Right here this evening, we have the ingredients of so many deep human relationships. And the question is, what role shall the Blessed Virgin play? What role does she play in the parish? Which means, therefore, in the home, in our, in our social contacts with each other. And the answer should be obvious. That, first of all, to the extent that our parish gives us the Blessed Sacrament and Holy Communion, every time we, re we receive the body and blood of Christ, we're receiving something that came from a human mother. The humanity of Christ, may I stress again and again, is rooted in that physical humanity of the Blessed Mother. Christ's divinity is uncreated. His humanity, that bodily part of his humanity, came from the Blessed Mother. So every time we receive the Blessed Sacrament and Communion, Mary is there offering us the Son. And that's already a profound thought. We want now, and, and whenever we pray the Stations of the Cross, she appears in Station 4 and 12 and 14. But what, is this enough? Well, it's certainly a magnificent beginning. But what would be the full role of the Blessed Mother in our parish? I would say the easiest way is to say, if the parish forms itself, around the message of Fatima above all, and any other married apparition having ecclesiastical approval, to this extent it more fully conforms to the ideal of Marian devotion. And what does this include in our lives, in the parish, in our family, in our expectations of, of the world? It includes those familiar things which have perhaps become too familiar. People are tired. They want something new. They're tired of missions which say the same old thing and their ears are itching for novelty, but they should not itch for novelty. They should rather desire a deeper understanding of what is the perennial truth and the perennial truth which has but been emphasized by the Blessed Virgin of Fatima is that the sins of mankind are in any case always outrageous. And the more they increase, the more we continue to offend God with our sins, never mind other people's sins, never mind military budgets and armaments, our sins. And she mentioned explicitly the sins of the flesh as being the greatest reason why most souls are damned. But to the extent that we are 
the agents of all of these sinful deeds and attitude, to that extent we deserve punishment. We make war inevitable. Some people think that the only reason we have war is that we have generals and military spenders. And if only we can demote the generals, get rid of the armament, we'll live in peace. These are the dreamers I spoke about, and silly dreamers. They're not in contact with reality. You can't even keep a family in peace. You're going to keep nations in peace with, with hard ideological differences of religion, morality, state, and so on. Is a pure utopian nonsense. The Blessed Virgin warns us, therefore, about sin and the need to amend our lives. She warns us about how sins of the flesh are so easy and so available to affect our damnation. And here again, she has to play a key role in our family and in our parish that sins of the flesh involve the sexes for the most part, although today new perversions are growing up so that it's within one sex. But the typical sin of the flesh is fornication, impure pornography, I mean impurity and pornography, adulterous unions and the like, and single men are lusting after women, and married men are lusting after other women. To the extent that the Blessed Virgin becomes the ideal woman in a man's life. A single man, a young man, a youth, an adolescent, a married man, an old man. To the extent that he understands the mystery of a woman by seeing its most perfect example, the Blessed Virgin, to that extent he is more able to love purity, to at least desire purity. To the extent that the women Young girls just in school, adolescent girls, girls about to be married, to the extent that it's the Blessed Mother who is their model in modest dress, in chastity, in purity, instead of some movie star or some sick rock singer. To that extent, the woman will, the women have a, a possibility of growing. So to the extent that men and women are rooted in this devotion to this wonderful woman, our mother, to that extent the family is happier, the parish is healthier. The Blessed Virgin has so many titles. She is a virgin, and therefore she inspires those who have no sexual contact. The consecrated virgins above all, but also the singles, who may not morally have sexual contact. If you're single, sex is excluded for you. She's a mother, and therefore she is the great consolation and model of women who have the joys of motherhood, but also the burden of motherhood, who worry about their children, their health, their education, their morality, and who pray constantly for their children. What a consolation to have a heavenly mother. She is a wife to St. Joseph. And there's a whole new set of attributes rooted in the Blessed Virgin as wife, as spouse. And all of us, whatever our status in life, some of us have our earthly mothers, some of us do not. All of us are in the last instance children. 
Sometimes we want to weep because we're oppressed by the things of the world. And whether our earthly mother is cruel or understanding or dead or absent or divorced, all the many things that happen in one's lifetime, we always know we have a blessed mother who loves us more than our earthly mother ever could. She's the mother of the church. She's also our mother. So therefore, the Blessed Virgin in the parish has this wonderful role of, of deepening our lives, and not in some morbid way, but of waking us up to the mystery of the sexes, of waking us up to the mystery of God, of, of allowing us to bear the evils and pains of life with courage. The message of Fatima has this added ability to make us serious and responsible about the true causes of war, to stop the silliness which has afflicted so many people. They have these little superficial remedies for the grievous ills of mankind. And they think they're so important. As for example, when it comes to war, all they have to do is pick at the comments, and that, that will stop nuclear war. They should read Solzhenitsyn. And if they want to show their love of neighbor, all they have to do is pick at the parliament for more welfare payments. Instead of looking around in the parish for someone who needs a bowl of soup, or maybe most people don't need food, but most people would love a pleasant visit. And that's real charity. Instead of this posturing, pompous, uh, act as if the government has to, has to babysit for us. The real charity is look in your parish. Look at children running wild without a mother. Look at lonely old people who wouldn't mind a little conversation instead of just staring out of a window. And this, and this is part also of the message of Fatima, to get serious about things and attend to our state in life. That everyone, that the, the only happy society is the orderly society. And when people start neglecting their own duties to do other people's duty, we have chaos, as we have today. Nobody wants his own state in life. Everybody's trying to run away from his own responsibilities and run towards something else. And the result is chaos. There's no more happiness, but we have this, we manage to convince ourselves that we're more important doing the deep things than doing the little humble things that belong to the parish. I want to end with a thought. I believe your English currency still has uh, refers to the Queen as saying, by the grace of God, Queen. And that's a beautiful saying. I like that. I like the fact that your queen, whatever her name be, Elizabeth or Victoria or whatever, uh, the, the, the coinage at least of England says, she reigns by the grace of God. And that has a deep philosophical implication for the nature of the state. Now, I'm not going to discuss that, though. And England is a beautiful realm, and may she reign long. But let's think of our own blessed mother. And in a much deeper sense, we say, by the grace of God, she is our queen, not just of England, 
to by the grace of God, because of the favor God bestowed upon us, she is our queen. And what sort of a queen? If we think of the litany, she's queen of patriarchs, queen of angels, queen of men, queen of peace. So let us have a more, uh, a deeper devotion to this beautiful woman who is our mother and our queen.